Well, good evening, Sojourn. It's good to be with you tonight. I want to thank uh, Pastor Jamal and all of your pastors and leaders for the privilege that I have of uh, stewarding this pulpit and sharing with you. And I also want to say thank you uh, to you as a church. I'm so grateful for all that uh, the Lord is doing through you to share hope with this community and across our city. And as Pastor Westbrook mentioned a few moments ago, I do have the opportunity because of the role I have uh, to see your work and to see uh, much of that work that's taking place even outside of this community, but in the community here. I'm so thankful for your uh, partnership with uh, uh, Refuge Louisville, for the Louisville Rescue Mission, for ministering to uh, those who are being touched by that ministry. And uh, we're investing, all of our churches in Kentucky, 2400 are investing together in those ministries. I want to thank you on behalf of 50 church planters across the state uh, who are doing the work with the help and investment uh, that you are making as you put your money in the offering plate. A part of that goes uh, to support those 50 new church plants across Kentucky. I want to thank you on behalf of 1,260 abused and neglected kids who you are helping love and provide uh, safe homes for through our children's homes, Sunrise Children's Services. Uh, one of those children is in my home. Our fourth child is a foster daughter, a uh, five-year-old little girl who we have through our children's home. And, and you're helping us love and provide a safe place for her. And I thank you for that. Uh, so much more that you're doing outside, even of Kentucky, your disaster relief volunteers from the state here. We're in Houston and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, sharing hope to people whose lives have been devastated in the hurricane season and, and other disasters. Uh, there's a thousand new churches being planted across North America. That is, we partner together, not just the 2,400 churches of Kentucky, your sister churches, but all of the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. And then there's 3,600 missionaries overseas. And there's a lot of other things that I could mention, the 20,000 seminary students you're helping to educate in our seminaries. But let me stop there and just say how much I appreciate you, your generosity, all that God is doing through you. As I had uh, the invitation come from your pastor to be here, uh, he has let me know that in this 500th anniversary year of the Protestant Reformation that your pastor's I have been preaching on the foundational principles of the Reformation, which are in fact the essential foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And this afternoon, this evening, my task is to help us understand sola deo gloria, God's glory alone. Now that's quite the task in one sermon, I have to tell you. When I received uh, that topic, I didn't know if I should say thank you or you're kidding me, right? But nevertheless, uh, when I talk about uh, this subject, as we look to God's word tonight, sola deo gloria is the foundational truth and overarching reality really of the universe. And that's not an exaggeration. And so how shall we begin with such an incredible thought, the glory of God alone. Let me begin with a memory. After dark, 
the meeting would take place in the street in front of my house. It began with a little ritual through which it was chosen. And if you're one of the kids from the neighborhood who wasn't it, the moment it was chosen, you scattered to your hiding place. Now, we lived on a hill in a little town in the mountains, and just above us, a little further up the hill, was a neighbor by the name of Mr. Freeman. Mr. Freeman was a big man. We had the distinct impression that he didn't like kids a lot. And there was not just an impression, but a surety that he didn't like kids playing in his yard. But I knew that if I could climb the hill in the dark and, and make it into Mr. Freeman's yard undetected and lie down in the grass, that the only way I could be found by it was if whoever was it would also climb the hill in the dark, risk the wrath of Mr. Freeman just to look to see if anyone was hiding in his yard. Few made that climb. Few took that risk. And so, there I would lay in the grass for a long time. And laying there in the grass for a long time with nothing else to do, I would look up into the sky and gaze at the stars and be filled with a feeling that I still remember, just a sense of awe at what I saw. I've had that same feeling looking out across the ocean. On a clear day when you can see to the horizon and yet know that thousands of miles beyond that horizon, the vastness of the ocean continues to stretch. Oh, I remember that same feeling standing at the foot of the General Sherman Sequoia tree. Maybe you've seen that tree. It's the largest tree in the world. And at its base, the circumference of that tree is, is 100 feet around the trunk. The tree is 275 feet tall. It's over 2,000 years old. And, and I remember standing there and looking up at it. Oh, some. And I had that same feeling when my first child, my son, was born. And I looked down at that little fella, and thankfully, my wife would tell you I wasn't in awe because of his size. <laughs> but I was in awe because of this little helpless precious, seemingly perfect child whom God was entrusting to me to parent, to love, and to raise all. As I read the closing words to Romans 11, I get that same feeling. These verses are about the one who has created all of the sights that have given me a sense of awe. 
And so I suppose that to be in awe of the one who created everything that is awe-inspiring, everything that is awesome, sort of makes sense, doesn't it? It adds up. But somehow, we often miss that. We see the majesty of the stars, but miss the majesty of the one who has cast them into the universe. We see the vastness of the oceans, but miss the glory of the one who calls from deep to deep. We see the beauty and miracle of new life in the face of a newborn, but we miss the imago dei, the, the fact that that little one, she is formed in the image of God and to the glory of God. We miss it. But isn't that why we're here tonight? It is not why we've come to this place, to be reminded of the source of all that is. We've come to hear again that the heavens are declaring his glory. We've come to be reminded that his glory fills the earth, to be assured that indeed he is the king of glory. He is the Lord of glory. His name is glorious and all glory belongs to him who sits on the throne. We've come here so we won't continue to be captivated by the lesser glory and miss the greater glory of our great God. We are here. Now, from listening to one of his sermons recently, I know that my former student, Pastor Jamal, has become the professor, at least he's trying to be, because I heard him in one of his sermons offer a quiz to you. And it was the worst kind of quizzes because it was a pop quiz. But I thought I might offer one as well. <laughs> and so get ready. Here's the quiz. You have been walking through the solas. The first three have been covered already by your pastors. What are they? Hint. They all end with alone. And so what do you remember? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and understand you're getting towards, we've got some working ahead here, you're getting towards scripture alone, and today we are at God's glory alone, the sola, sola deo gloria has been called the lifeblood of the solas. It encompasses all of the others. It guides our understanding of the others. But not only that, it guides and guards our understanding of ourselves. It guides and guards our understanding of our world. It guides and guards our understanding of all that is. And Paul tries to capture that in what we know as the doxology of Romans. From the very beginning of his letter, the book of Romans, Paul has been presenting a case for the gospel. And after making that case and, and wrestling with how the gospel fits his own people, the Jews, many of whom are rejecting the gospel, we come now to the end of chapter 11 and we find Paul just overcome with a sense of awe that the God who loves us would be so kind as to provide a way for our sin to be forgiven, ordain a plan for our salvation, provide a way 
for those of us who are far from him to be brought near to him, even welcomed into his family and adopted as his own sons and daughters. And as Paul has dealt with the glorious gospel, he breaks out in praise, glorifying the author of that gospel. Like the God he is praising, Paul's words are rich and they are deep. His words and the reality of the truth that he conveys, that everything is for God's glory alone, confronts us with some questions about ourselves, about our way of thinking, about our way of living. And I want us to think about some of those questions tonight. And the first question is this. God's glory demands of us, will we acknowledge God? Will we acknowledge God? This is the question that God's glory asks of all of us, moment by moment and day by day. Will we acknowledge the one who is all glorious and the one who has given us life? That question comes to us even before we have trusted in Christ and the gospel. It comes to us as unbelievers. Looking again at these verses at the end of Romans, just 33, 34, and 35 for now, Paul says, oh, the the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgment, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, Paul asked. Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Paul declares that God is God. He declares that God is beyond our comprehension and is in no way dependent upon us or obligated to us, that God is perfectly wise, that God is all-knowing, that God needs nothing. Pollsters tell us most Americans still believe in God, at least in a general sense, but the percentage seems to be shrinking rather than growing. And I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because of the influence of our, of our secular worldview, of the, of the culture around us, a secular education, humanity's attempt to explain our existence apart from God, apart from the creator. Uh, that's become in our day a, a codified complex system, has it not? A codified complex system of unbelief. The foundational doctrine that is at the base of it, the root of it, is that everything that is is the result of some random occurrence billions upon billions of years ago rather than as a result of the work of a magnificent, glorious, almighty God. And yet as we look around us, God's fingerprints are upon everything that we see. As Paul argues back in Romans 1, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. What God has made gives evidence to the fact that he has made it. His fingerprints are upon your life and mine. 
and everything that is a part of his world. Could we deny that? Some struggle with uh, this notion of believing in God, I believe because of the lure of moral freedom. We want to throw off restraint. We want to live in pursuit of our own pleasure and not have to answer for anything that we do. And so if we tell ourselves there's no God, then we're free to choose whatever we want in our imaginary world. But the problem is that's an imaginary world. And deep down inside, we all know it. I'll decide what's right for me. You can decide what's right for you. That kind of thinking falls apart. When a man shoots children in the head hiding under church pews. There is right and there is wrong. There is good and there is evil. And they're really not up for debate. Scripture teaches us as much when Romans 2.15 says that God's law has been written on our hearts. We cannot anymore erase the law of God written on our heart that presses upon us what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil, then we could erase the very DNA code from our bodies. It's there. And we may pretend it's not, and we may want to set ourselves free from it, but that doesn't change the reality of it or the God who has determined it. Third, I think some struggle to believe in God because of how can I put it? Because of what cannot be known about God. As Paul so eloquently argues here in Romans 11, God cannot fully be comprehended by us. He cannot fully be understood. He cannot fully be explained. And so, so some, I think, reject the very notion, the very idea of God, thinking that if I can't completely understand it, then it must not be real. If I can't completely understand God, if I can't get my head around who God is, what God has done, and why God does the things he does, then, then, then I just dismiss the entire notion. But you know, by that line of reasoning, personally, I could conclude geometry doesn't exist. Because there's just a lot about it that I don't get. I could conclude by that line of reasoning that there's no such thing as organic chemistry or aerospace engineering. In fact, there are a lot of things that if they were depending upon, dependent upon me to understand them, to acknowledge their existence, that would simply disappear. <laughs> and maybe that's not true for you, but there are probably some things that you don't completely understand, but you know are still real. Whether or not I can fully understand or explain something has nothing to do with its existence. And as Paul speaks of the glory and the majesty of God, it makes the point without apology that his ways are unsearchable, that there's so much about him that, that we cannot comprehend, but that in fact is what makes him glorious. The question that is pressed upon us is, do you believe if you're struggling to believe in God because of something a science teacher or philosopher professor has said, I want to challenge you not to blindly accept their opinion as the final word in the matter. If you're choosing to pretend that God doesn't exist because you don't like his rules, I want you to consider the fact that every rule of God is intended to protect and prosper not only your life, but your eternal soul. 
If you struggle to believe in God because there's so much about God that you do not understand, I want to encourage you not to reject what is undeniable, the existence of God, simply because there are some things about God that are beyond our ability to comprehend. Will you in your life acknowledge God? It's the question God's glory demands of us. There's another question God's glory demands of us that we should consider, and it is this. Will you accept God's claim upon your life? This is the question that God's glory asks of the unrepentant, the one who believes and acknowledges, yes, there's a God, but the one who has not yet surrendered to God's claim on his or her life. The final verse of the chapter, Paul breaks out in the praise of saying, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Verse 36 is the original, it's not about you, quote. For from him and through him and for him are all things. Not for me and from me and through me. Let's break down what Paul's saying there in that verse. Paul uses three prepositions to describe the relationship between God and all things. From, through, and for. Preposition from is translated from the Greek preposition ek, which literally means out of. And so when Paul says that from God are all things, out of God are all things, he brings to mind the doctrine of creation. Genesis 1 teaches us that God created the universe, ex nihilo in the Latin, out of nothing. That means that God didn't take some stuff and make some stuff. No, it all came out of him, from him. He spoke. And as God spoke, what he spoke came to be. He is the creator. Everything comes from him, including you and including me. Paul uses also the preposition dia. Greek preposition is causal. That is to say, all things haven't simply come from God. God has caused all things to come. This speaks of the sovereignty of God. God did not ignite a big bang somewhere back in the past and now everything's just rolling on its own. No, he is the first cause and the ongoing cause. God is sovereign. He is in control of his creation. All things are through him and all things are from him. And then there's that third preposition. All things are for him. From the Greek, it's ace or ice. It carries the idea of motion towards a destination. So all things are moving to or toward God. They're for him in the sense that everything that God has created, he has created for a purpose and that purpose is being fulfilled. The purpose for which God has made everything will be accomplished. And so it is for God. It is toward God. He's the source and the end of all things. 
And this thought that all things are from him, through him, and for him brings Paul to say, to him be glory forever. Amen. That is the sola deo gloria. What is sola deo gloria? It is that everything is from God, through God, and for God. And if you would miss that, you would miss the essence of your life. If you would miss that you are from God and through God and for God. If you would reject that, you would reject the very purpose for which you were created. But those who would accept that find God's acceptance as we repent of anything and everything that we have done to resist him, to offend him, to sin against him, as we have tried to take control of our own lives and walked away from his plan in sin. But we would turn from that and turn back to him, acknowledging that he is God and accepting his claim upon our lives then we will know the very purpose for which we were made. And it is to give him glory. The final question for us to consider, will you acclaim God's glory through your worship? This is the question God's glory asks of his sons and his daughters. This is the question God's glory asks of those who have accepted his claim upon their lives. Those who have accepted God's claim upon our lives and have believed the gospel and trusted Christ should desire to live our lives in worship. And Paul makes this clear at the end of chapter 11 when he begins in chapter 12. And, and, and this is the way it works. If you want to understand chapter 12, don't open your Bibles to Romans 12 and start reading. Open your Bibles to Romans 11. Because Paul hasn't changed lanes here. He hasn't begun a new thought. No, it's a continuation of thought. You are from God and, and, and through God and for God and to God be glory in all things. Therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and to approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see how this works? When we accept God's claim upon our lives, when we understand that we are uh, from him and through him and for him, it drives us to live our lives in worship. The glory of God calls us to glorify God through our worship and to worship him alone. What does that look like? Just at a practical level. It, 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 it looks like more than coming here at 6 p.m. on a Sunday night. The church should gather to worship. Whatever hour you choose, you should gather to worship. But what does this look like? What does a life of worship look like tomorrow? What does a life of worship look like Wednesday night or Friday night? What does it look like? What's the application of from him and through him and for him to every aspect of our life? It's when we apply that to us, that for him and through him 
and from him are you. From him and through him and for him is your wife. You can worship God in your marriage. Men, as you acknowledge that, as you, as, as you steward your wife, recognizing that she is from him and through him and for him. Ladies, you can worship God in your marriage as you acknowledge that your husband is from God and for God and through God. When we acknowledge that our children are from him and through him and for him, we can worship God by the way we raise our children, by the way we steward these lives that God has entrusted to our care. For him and through him and from him is your church. And when you walk in fellowship as a body of Christ, recognizing that it's not my church or your church, it's his church. And your worship in the church glorifies God. For from him and through him and for him is your job and from him and through him and for him is your money and, and from him and for him and through him is your house and your car and from him and through him and for him is your school and your neighbor and your neighborhood and your city. And when we live our lives with that understanding that it's all from him and it's all through him and it's all for him, we live a life of worship. We live a life to his glory. When we see ourselves and our world in this way, our lives declare to him be glory forever. John Piper expressed it like this. He said, the glory of God is the great reason for all existence, including yours. You're not going to hear that on the nightly news but it's the most important fact in the world. You're, you're not going to read it in a science textbook in the university about the universe because the world is blind and they have chosen to be blind by preferring themselves at the center of all things rather than God. And isn't that what we tend to do? We place ourselves at the center. But he is at the center. And so the life question that sums up life itself is this. For whom will you live your life? For whom will you live your life? And in light of that question, I commend Christ to you. He is worthy of your living. He is worthy of your dying. He is worthy of your life. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your praise. To him alone be the glory forever. Amen. Sola Deo. Gloria. Let us pray.